Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The use of intravenous magnesium in emergency situations is a topic that providers may recall discussing in school or in training. But if you don't routinely practice in the acute care setting, you may have forgotten how magic magnesium really is. Joining us today is Mayo Clinic's former ED pharmacy resident, Dr. Nicole Lovacek, to review magnesium's mechanism of action, outline dosing and administration considerations, and review its effectiveness in select scenarios. To start off this presentation, I'd like to do a quick poll of the audience. Does anybody know how many reactions magnesium is thought to be involved in throughout the body? Anybody want to take a guess? 30? Um, it's actually greater than 300 enzymatic reactions. So going into this presentation, I want you guys to think about how frequently magnesium can be encountered in emergency medicine and how often it's utilized throughout our bodies on a day-to-day -day basis. At the end of this presentation, I hope you all will be able to recognize proposed mechanisms of magnesium in different pathologies, recall dosing and administration rates specific to, um, for each emergency for magnesium, and then describe its effectiveness. So for a brief overview of magnesium, it is the second most abundant intracellular cation found in our body um, behind potassium. Primarily, it is found within the bone, muscles, and soft tissues. As I had mentioned before, it's a cofactor for over 300 enzymatic systems utilized in our body to maintain homeostasis on a day-to-day -day basis. It has a vital role in, in the synthesis of ATP, our primary source of energy. A normal serum level, depending on the laboratory reporting out the result, ranges from 1.7 to 2.4 milligrams per deciliter. Um, however, this isn't something we are typically targeting in emergency medicine, and so the, for the remainder of the presentation, I'm not going to be talking about targeting specific magnesium levels. An overview of the specific enzymatic reactions relating to magnesium in our body, it's vital for roles, as I talked about before, um, production of ATP, maintenance of an appropriate heart rhythm, so maintaining normal sinus rhythm, um, adequate vascular tone, and bone formation. It also has a role in muscle contraction, contraction and relaxation, platelet-activated thrombosis, neurologic functioning, and neurotransmitter release. So there's a wide variety of different processes that magnesium is involved in throughout our bodies. Before I go into talking about the dosing and administration of magnesium in specific emergencies, I thought it would be beneficial to talk about how we utilize it for electro electrolyte repletion and then also our standard guidelines here um, at Mayo Clinic um, enterprise-wide. So for someone who's hypomagnesemic and with an asymptomatic presentation, typically it's recommended to give magnesium at a rate of one gram per hour. Some common risks associated with faster repletion of magnesium are transient hypotension and flushing, and these are usually more benign adverse effects and resolve on their own. Um, looking at the Mayo Clinic IV administration guidelines, for electrolyte replacement, this rate is very similar to what's recommended in the package insert, so one gram per hour and up to two grams per hour and other indications. In emergent situations, um, we can give magnesium as an IV push, and this is typically over one minute. Um, some exceptions to this general electrolyte repletion guideline of one to two grams per hour um, here in our enterprise guidelines are specific to tetany, um, code 45 situations, preterm labor, um, seizures and pregnancy, and severe asthma. There are some other emergencies that I'll be talking about today in this presentation um, that may be able to fall into this exception category as well. 
So for an overview of the emergencies I'm going to be talking about in this presentation, there are five that I'm going to be focusing on for the remainder of our time here today. I'm going to be talking about status asthmaticus, eclampsia, torsades, migraines, and AFib with RVR. Um, there are some other emergencies where IV magnesium has been studied, um, such as hydrofluoric acid burns and cardiac arrest, um, but I won't be elaborating on the specific data related to those emergencies today for time purposes. So for our first emergency I'm going to be talking about, status asthmaticus or asthma exacerbations. This is defined as an acute or subacute worsening of symptoms and lung function from baseline. 1.8 million ED visits per year in the U.S. are associated with asthma exacerbations. This is something that will be frequently encountered as an ED clinician, um, and it's important to understand where magnesium can have a role in these patients. Patients who present with a severe exacerbation, it's typically defined by baseline pulmonary function tests, such as our FEV1, or forced expiratory volume in one section, or one second, sorry, and our peak expiratory flow, or PEF. If a patient's presenting with their pulmonary, those function tests less than or equal to 50% of what their baseline or predicted value is, it's associated with being a severe exacerbation. It's important to note that to be able to obtain these tests, these tests, we need to perform spirometry on these patients. And from my um, encounters so far here in the ED at St. Mary's in Rochester, this isn't something that we're frequently doing in patients that are severely presenting. Um, one, because they may be unable to do it, and two, it's not necessarily a standard practice that, I've, um, that we've done here. So for the proposed mechanism of action of magnesium in asthma, the pathophysiology of asthma relates to bronchoconstriction as well as increased inflammation and mucus in the airways. So you can see here I've depicted a constricted bronchial. Calcium influx into the cells is thought um, to be related, is what is related to this bronchoconstriction. And magnesium has a role in actually blocking this calcium influx, leading to bronchodilation and increase in movement in the airways for these patients. Other mechanisms where magnesium may have a role in asthma is through intracellular phosphorylation, um, neutrophils, and the release of cytokines propagating inflammation, prostaglandins, and acetylcholine. But the primary mechanism I want you all to think about is really block that blockade of the calcium influx into the bronchioles. So there are several trials looking at the use of IV magnesium for asthma exacerbations. I'm going to be talking about one of the trials that has um, the best data overall in terms of a study design um, and minimization of bias. Um, there's about 13 trials specifically looking at IV magnesium um, um, for asthma. So this was a multi-center, placebo-controlled trial done in eight emergency departments in the U.S., and they included adult patients with asthma um, that had been using acute medications, whether that's a uh, such as a rescue inhaler of albuterol, within the last six months. They included patients who were able to perform spirometry, so if someone was unable to perform the te those tests, they were excluded from the trial, and they had to have an FEV1 of less than or equal to 30% of predicted, so these patients would fall into that severe category of an asthma exacerbation. Patients received the standard of care at this time with stacked albuterol nebulizers and 100% oxygen, plus 125 milligrams of IV methylprednisolone. Um, something of note with this trial is currently our typical practice is to actually use um, duoneb, so ipatropium albuterol instead of just albuterol alone for treatment of asthma. 30 minutes after receiving this treatment, um, patients were randomized to receive magnesium sulfate 2 grams IV over 10 to 15 minutes or a matching placebo. For primary outcomes, they looked at that FEV1 predicted at 120 minutes and then focused on 240 minutes, so at 2 hours and 4 hours after initiating the treatment. 
When looking at the primary outcome overall in the entire population in the trial, um, in this chart you can see I have time on the x-axis and the FEV1 as a percent of predicted on the y-axis. At time zero, there was no difference between the two groups in baseline predicted pulmonary function test um, with a mean of about 23% in these patients. They would fall in that severe category. At 120, mi minute, 120 minutes, there was no difference between the two groups in terms of magnesium and placebo and improvement in the FEV1 from baseline. But at four hours, at 240 minutes, there was a statistically significant difference between the two groups, um, about 6% difference between the, the treatment arm, 49% um, versus 43% of predicted in the, in the two groups. What's interesting when looking at this trial is they did look at some secondary outcomes, including hospital length of stay and admissions, and magnesium wasn't associated with any improvement in these outcomes. But they took the primary outcome a little bit further and did a subgroup analysis looking at patients with an even more severe presentation of their FEV1 from baseline. So they took the category of patients with a, a less than 25% um, of predicted from their baseline, and had found that actually the improvement um, in their FEV1 was really only associated with this population. So that less than 30 percent to 25 percent, there wasn't any difference between the two groups. So in the overall population, what was really highlighting that difference is this group that was less than 25 percent. They had found a mean difference and improvement in FEV1 from baseline in these patients of 9 percent as compared to um, placebo. So some key points when thinking about asthma exacerbations. The best data for using um, IV magnesium in asthma exacerbation actually comes from a systematic review, which includes a variety of different dosing regimens, anywhere from 1.2 grams to 2 grams over 15 to 30 minutes. Typically, 2 grams over 20 minutes is a reasonable approach to start for patients presenting with these severe exacerbations. But something that I want to highlight that is that if these patients are preventing, presenting severe enough, it's important to give magnesium early on in these patients. So in that trial I talked about before, they gave it within 30 minutes of their presentation. Um, when looking at the systematic review, um, in the trial I talked about before, magnesium wasn't associated with a reduction in hospital rates and admission, um, admissions for asthma, um, but, in this, um, but they have found when looking at all of the trials as a whole that this is a trend associated with IV magnesium. But really focusing on that baseline population of the FEV1 of less than 25%. So those patients who are coming in with very severe presentations, using accessory muscles, and um, struggling to breathe on their own. The role that I see for IV magnesium and asthma is those patients presenting with those severe exacerbations or those that are um, persistently hypoxemic despite our initial standard treatments. So patients who may not have presented as severe but are continuing to decompensate, magnesium can have a role for these patients. Um, and one thing of note is in most of these trials there are actually no um, significant adverse events of requiring interventions associated with magnesium that aren't transient. So after I'm um, talking about magnesium for asthma exacerbations, I'd like to go into our first Poll Everywhere question for this presentation. Um, so for those in the room, uh, you can use the Poll Everywhere app for your response, or as well respond um, with MayoRx to 22333 um, with A, B, C, or D, um, and then as well as pollEverywhere.com slash MayoRx. Um, the question is, what is considered a proposed mechanism um, for magnesium and asthma exacerbations? All right, so I think we have a good proportion of our answers. So I agree with everyone in the audience that inhibition of intracellular calcium influx is the correct answer for the primary role of magnesium in asthma exacerbations. Um, NMDA receptors, um, cortical spreading depression, um, are other mechanisms which magnesium may have a role in different pathologies. I'll be talking about a little bit later in this presentation, so specifically migraines. Um, and then uh, magnesium does not increase the intracellular calcium influx. It decreases it. So the next emergency that I'm going to be talking about is eclampsia. 
So eclampsia is a new onset tonic-clonic focal or multifocal seizure associated with pregnancy with a hypertensive disorder. Eclampsia has a significant impact in mor on morbidity and mortality, and approximately 10% of these patients will have recurrent seizures without treatment. Um, eclampsia and seizures can actually lead to a 3 to 25-fold increase in complications associated with pregnancy, such as placental abruption. It is one of the three main leading main causes of maternal mortality, um, so this is a very important intervention we can make, make to prevent progression of these seizures. Its incidence does vary based off geographic, social, economic, and racial factors worldwide, as well as within the United States. So patients with lower socioeconomic statuses have higher frequencies of eclampsia. The proposed mechanism of action of magnesium in eclampsia um, has a significant role really as seizures as a whole. So I wanted to provide a brief overview of seizures themselves. So when we think about seizures, it's really a balance between our inhibitory control and our excitatory control within the brains. That excitatory pathway is relating to our NMDA receptors. So glutamate is the normal substrate of NMDA receptors leading to excitatory pathways within the brain. It is thought that magnesium actually binds to a subunit of this NMDA receptor, leading to blockade of the receptor and an inability of glutamate to actually bind and propagate an excitatory impulse, leading to cessation of actual seizure activity. For my discussion on eclampsia, I have included really the landmark trial that has established magnesium as our treatment of choice for patients with eclampsia and seizures. So this was an international multi-center randomized controlled trial that included patients with a clinical diagnosis of eclampsia regardless of delivery, um, other anticonvulsants that they've received, and then either if they had a singleton or a multiple pregnancy, so if they had twins, triplets, et cetera. Um, this treatment was actually interesting because they compared um, magnesium sulfate with our other standard anti-epileptics at this time, so magnesium sulfate plus diazepam and magnesium sulfate plus phenytoin. On the next slide, I'll go in further about the dosing and regimens they actually use for these treatments. For primary outcomes, they looked at recurrence of convulsions and then also maternal death. So for the interventions, I'd like to highlight um, what they had done for magnesium sulfate. So there are two different treatment regimens that patients could receive um, in the magnesium sulfate um, treat for treatment. It was either an IM or an IV regimen. Each regimen started off with a four gram IV load over five minutes, and then the IM regimen had a total of 10 grams administered to the patient. Um, and then the IV, IV regimen was followed by a one gram per hour infusion for 24 hours or until um, convulsions had, had stopped. For the diazepam and phenytoin regimen, both had started with an initial IV boluses of diazepam until seizures had um, stopped. And then the diazepam group was followed by infusion for 24 hours, and phenytoin was followed by a one gram load, and then dosing every six hours for up to 24 hours. For results of the first treatment arm, so looking at magnesium versus diazepam, you can see that there were no differences in maternal death between the two treatment groups. But magnesium was actually associated with a decrease in recurrence of convulsions in the patients that had received it as compared to diazepam. For secondary outcomes, they looked at um, outcomes that could impact both the mom and, and the baby as well. So they looked at APGAR, score, APGAR scores, um, which is a score looking at um, how well the baby is doing after birth. So typically a score of 7 to 10 is considered normal um, after birth. So when looking at APGAR scores less than 7, there were actually more babies that were in the diazepam group that had poor outcomes after birth. Um, more babies in the diazepam group also were in um, a special care unit such as a NICU. Um, there were no differences in adverse effects between the two treatment groups, and the most common adverse effects associated with magnesium was transient hypotension, which did resolve on its own and didn't require interventions in, in the patients. 
When looking at magnesium versus phenytoin, the results are very similar to what we had seen compared to diazepam. So there was no differences between the two groups in terms of maternal death, but there was a reduction in recurrence of convulsions in those patients that had received magnesium. The APGAR scores and length of stay in the special care units was similar as well. So babies that um, had been born to mothers that received magnesium had better APGAR scores and shorter lengths of stay in the NICU. And then also those mothers that had received magnesium actually had lower rates of intubation, ICU admissions, and pneumonia. Again, there were no differences in adverse effects, and most commonly in this arm of the group, it was hypotension and then dizziness were associated with the magnesium. Some key points that I would like you all to think about when looking at the use of IV magnesium for eclampsia is that it really is our anticonvulsant of choice in these patients, um, largely due to the fact that it does not have teratogenic properties um, that can impact the baby long term. Dosing ranges throughout the literature have been reported, um, primarily looking at a 4 to 6 gram IV load over 15 to 20 minutes, and then a continuous infusion of 1 to 2 grams per hour. Our standard here um, at Mayo Clinic in Midwest is a four gram IV load followed by a two gram per hour infusion for 24 hours or up until um, when seizures have stopped. The IV regimen is preferred over um, IM that was used in this study because IM absorption can be erratic. However, I think this is something that we can keep in the back of our minds in the EDs. If we're unable to achieve IV access, IM may have a role for these patients if they're coming in emergently and seizing. Patients should be monitored for toxicity because this is a large dose of magnesium over a prolonged period of time. And so looking at these patients, you can monitor their deep tendon refluxes as well as if they have any visual changes. Um, hypotension can potentially persist during these infusions for a prolonged period of time, but the risk versus benefit of giving the drug um, outweighs that risk of hypotension. So the next emergency I'm going to be talking about during this presentation is torsades. So torsades is a polymorphic ventricular arrhythmia associated with prolonged repolar repolarization and early after depolarization. Magnesium has a role in treatment of torsades by preventing these early after depolarizations and preventing the reinitiation of the arrhythmia and allowing the heart to go back into normal sinus rhythm. Torsades is associated with QT prolongation, abnormal T waves, and or U waves, and the, the pathology is related to potassium channels. Um, this is sudden cardiac death, and it's very important, and this is probably our, one of our more emergent situations that I'm going to be talking about today, where IV magnesium is our standard of care. For your reference, I've included an EKG strip on the bottom of the slide showing that twisting of points um, depiction of torsades on the EKG. So when looking at the data for uh, magnesium and torsades, there's actually really only two case series that have evaluated this use um, historically, and it's just been our treatment of care since then. So this is a trial from 1988. Um, ethically, when looking at this, it would be um, not as appropriate to randomize patients to torsades and no treatment versus placebo. Um, so <laughs> this trial looked at 12 consecutive patients in an ED over a four-year period that presented with torsades, that polymorphous VT with marked um, QT prolongation. And they received two grams of IV magnesium over 15 minutes with the potential to rebolus if this reoccurred um, on an EKG. Nine of these patients resolved the arrhythmia after receiving that first initial bolus, and three of them did require a second bolus with four grams in one patient and two grams in the other patients. So some key points about torsades. This is a very brief um, emergent situation that I'm going to be talking about, but it's really our standard of care um, for treatment of this arrhythmia. The American Heart Association actually recommends one to two grams for the treatment of torsades. However, it's reasonable to start with two to four grams for treatment, as this is what's typically been reported in the literature, and that's really what our standard of care for treatment is. So somewhere from starting around two to four grams is appropriate. 
Again, the mechanism is preventing that reinitiation of the arrhythmia and allowing the heart to convert back to sinus rhythm by stabilizing the cardiac membrane. For administration, if someone is presenting in torsades and they're pulseless, this is a key factor is that this needs to be given IV push. So here with our IV administration guidelines, that'd be roughly over a minute. Um, if patients are um, going in and out of torsades, this can be given over 15 minutes for a, like a secondary prevention type administration. Some additional considerations to think about when giving IV magnesium for torsades is correction of hypokalemia, as potassium channels do have a role in propagation of this arrhythmia. And majority of the patients in the literature that have presented with torsades were actually hypokalemic at um, presentation. And then as pharmacists, it's always beneficial for us to look at potential agents that could have caused um, this by stopping any uh, medications associated with QTC prolongation. So I have our second um, question for this presentation. So for the treatment of pulseless torsades, what is the best dosing and administration of magnesium? All right, so um, I think we have the majority of our answers here in the audience. Um, so I would agree with D that two grams IV bolus is a reasonable dose to start at with um, giving someone with pulseless torsades. So for answers A and B, because this patient is pulseless, we would not recommend giving um, IV magnesium over 15 minutes because this is an emergent situation and we can give it IV push. For answer C, six grams is typically a higher dose than we would initially recommend. So anywhere from two to four grams as an IV bolus and those with pulseless torsades is a reasonable place to start. The next emergency I'm going to be talking about in this presentation are migraines. So migraines are a headache associated with prodrome, aura, and postrome. So this is a significant presentation where patients can present with visual changes, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and pain that significantly impacts their day-to-day -day function, functioning in life. Headache is actually the fifth leading cause of US ED visits, and it's something that I've seen many times throughout my stay here so far at St. Mary's in Rochester. Approximately 5 million visits yearly in the U.S. are associated with headaches and migraines as a whole. Um, it is a common cause of disability and missed work days, so finding treatment options that are safe and effective for patients can be very beneficial to help get um, their headaches under control and to be back to their normal functioning on a day-to-day -day basis. The pathophysiology for migraines is complex and not entirely understood, but overall, it's thought to be related to a dysfunction in sensory control throughout the brain related to monoamines, as well as release of pain mediators and vasoactive peptides. Cortical spreading depression is a phenomenon that is a, associated to be a wave of inhibitory control throughout the brain, which presents with the initial aura of a migraine. Magnesium is actually thought to inhibit this cortical spreading depression, potentially stopping the progression of aura to a full-on migraine um, from its initiation. As I had alluded to previously, magnesium impacts vascular tone through calcium, and so vasodilation can potentially resolve pa the pain associated with migraines. As well as NMDA receptor blockade, um, magnesium can have a role in this as well. Um, substance P is a mediator of pain, and so magnesium can actually block this, hopefully mitigating some of the pain that patients are pre presenting with migraines. And then nitric oxide is another um, vasodilator that magnesium can actually stimulate the production of. So this is a very multifactorial mechanism, but I want you guys all to take away from this is that cortical spreading depression and that initiation of aura is what is thought to be where magnesium has its primary role in treatment of migraines. And so really it may have a role in that aura treatment. So when looking at the data for IV magnesium and migraines, there are multiple trials in um, evaluating its use. So I've included two here to talk about that have a little bit of contradictory results. The first trial is a randomized single-blind placebo-controlled trial that primarily included women of adult age with a greater than one-year history of migraine. 
They had to report subjective, moderate to severe pain on presentation, and with this presentation, the patients could not have used any other abortive medications. Patients were randomized to receive IV magnesium one gram over 15 minutes or placebo. Um, in the placebo group, after 30 minutes, if these patients still persisted um, to have moderate to severe pain, they were able to receive that one gram IV dose of magnesium. For primary outcome, they looked at pain intensity on a four-point scale, um, which also included functioning of date, like um, quality of life as well. So on zero, this would be no pain and no functioning with day-to-day -day activities, and three being severe and hindering most um, or all daily activities for the patient. When looking at results for this trial 30 minutes after intervention, so in group one, there were 15 patients, and 11 of the 15 patients initially presented with severe pain, and then the, rest, the remainder of the patients presented with moderate pain. And you can see here that after receiving that one-time dose of IV magnesium 30 minutes later, the majority of the patients were pain-free, and two of the patients were still reporting some mild pain and just moderate hindrance on their day-to-day -day activities. When looking at the placebo group at 30 minutes, so those that had not received magnesium yet, um, 12 of the patients reported severe pain on presentation, um, and the remainder three reported moderate pain. And you can see here after receiving placebo, still 11 of those patients had severe pain, three had moderate pain, one had mild pain, and none of them had were pain-free. In this group, actually, all the patients did receive that one gram IV bolus of magnesium and reported um, another 30 minutes later, so about an hour after the initial randomization in the arms, reported zero pain in all of those patients in the second group. This trial is interesting because a lot of patients actually did report having flushing and burning sensation associated with mag magnesium. Um, only a few patients, I think it was like three um, in the first group and three in the second group, had reported hypotension, but this was something that didn't require an active intervention um, in both treatment groups. So overall, um, moderate benign on the adverse effects profile. The next trial I'm going to be talking about is, has results that are a little bit different than what um, I had previously discussed for using IV magnesium for migraines. So this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that was done in two different emergency departments in the U.S. They included patients with the International Headache Society criteria for migraine of adult age, and primarily the participants were women again. This trial is different because it's looking at the use of magnesium in addition to um, another treatment option that we utilize for migraines. Um, so they, all of the patients received a metoclopramide 20 milligrams IV plus magnesium in the magnesium treatment group or plus placebo. For primary outcome, they looked at difference in subjective pain improvement on a visual analog scale from 0 to 100 at time 0, 15, 30, and 45 minutes. The results of this trial, they actually are the complete opposite of what we had seen in the previous trial. So they did not find a difference between the two groups and that mean change on the visual analog scale from baseline. However, when looking at that change in pain from a percentage, patients in the group that received magnesium actually had um, worse pain as compared to those that just received the Reglan plus placebo. When looking at functional status in these patients as well, patients that received magnesium had a lower functional status as compared to those that received that Reglan and placebo. And this is thought to be that in combination with other agents, that vasodilation mediated by magnesium may actually be um, an adverse um, mechanism related to the pathophysiology of migraine. So in summary, there is conflicting evidence for the use of magnesium IV for migraines. There is a, a systematic review that looked at all of the trials that have associated IV magnesium, and it's likely safe with a positive improvement, but this is still conflicting. And when looking at these trials, I think it's important to note that most of the trials looking at magnesium are actually in, um, in conjunction with another agent. So one thought that I had when looking at these trials is, is this reduction in pain really associated with magnesium, or is it with the other agent? 
it's not entirely um, delineated if that's true. Um, a lot of the trials looking at magnesium um, on its own show a positive benefit, um, but significant improvements have mostly been noted in those trials with other agents. Some key points to take um, for using IV magnesium in migraines is that there have been benefits associated with it alone. And then again, in combination, I think it's important to consider that it may not just, it may not be the magnesium itself or alone that's causing the benefit in these patients. A typical place to start for dosing in these patients, if magnesium is going to be given for migraines, would be one to two grams IV over 15 minutes. And it is an overall safe alternative, although patients may have some of those transient and reversible side effects that we think about. But where I see a role for magnesium in migraines are those patients who are unable to tolerate other therapies. So a key population I think about is someone who's pregnant coming in that may not be able to have some of our other therapies that we typically present, or those with like a cardiac history on that baseline. Overall, I feel like there needs to be more data to evaluate the true impact of IV magnesium um, in emergent treatment of our migraines. The last emergency I'm going to be talking about during this presentation is AFib. So AFib is the most frequently encountered arrhythmia that we see in the emergency department. It has an exponential increase in its incidence with ages greater than 65, as well as the age greater than 85. About 33.5 million people worldwide do have AFib, and it's, in 2014, it was estimated to cost the U.S. $10.1 billion for ED visits. It does commonly present with other disease states. It may present on its own, but patients of older age can present with sepsis, dehydration, heart failure, and AFib at the same time as well. Um, for your reference, I've included an EKG strip showing the typical presentation of AFib, so that irregularly irregular pattern. The proposed mechanism of action of magnesium and AFib primarily relates to rate control. So these three um, boxes um, so the top two boxes and then the one on the right side of the screen. So looking at decreased SA node depolarization, prolonged AV node refractory period, and inhibition of L-type calcium channels. So it's proposed that mag magnesium can have an impact in AFib by slowing down the patient's ventricular rate. Another proposed mechanism is actually related to synergism with other antiarrhythmic agents. And this is thought by reducing the patient's heart rate enough these other antiarrhythmic agents can work to convert the patient back to sinus rhythm or can, can spontaneously convert on its own. So there's a potential for magnesium to work with both rate and rhythm control together. For data looking at magnesium and AFib, I'm going to be talking about two different trials, um, one looking at uh, magnesium versus placebo, and then another one looking at different dosing regimens for magnesium in the treatment of AFib. So this was a prospective, double-blind, randomized controlled trial that looked at patients who presented to the ED with AFib and a ventricular rate greater than 120 beats per minute. And this was all adult patients. All of the patients in this trial did receive our standard AV nodal blocking agents. And what's interesting about this trial is about 80% of the patients received digoxin as an AV nodal blocker, followed by verapamil and metoprolol. So this isn't necessarily our standard of care today. Um, for the treatment arm, they used 5 grams of magnesium sulfate. The first half, so 2.5 grams of that, was given over 20 minutes, and then the remainder was given over, 20, over 2 hours versus a matching placebo. For outcomes, they looked at ventricular rate of less than 100 beats per minute, um, mean changes in the ventricular rate at 30, 60, 90, 120, 150 minutes, and then that conversion to sinus rhythm. When looking at the outcomes for this trial, you can see that in the treatment arm that had received magnesium, there was a greater incidence of those achieving that ventricular rate of less than 100 beats per minute as compared to placebo. More patients in the magnesium treatment arm also converted to sinus rhythm as compared to those that had received placebo. 
Unfortunately, more patients that received magnesium also experienced adverse effects, but these were also transient and benign, so really that hypotension and that flushing we think about with magnesium. There wasn't an increase in bradycardia or more significant adverse effects we'd think about with like um, um, EKG changes associated with magnesium. The next trial I'd like to talk about with magnesium actually came out earlier this year. Um, so it's the LOMAGI study. It was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized controlled trial that was done in three different emergency departments in Tunisia. They included all adults with AFib and a ventricular rate greater than 120 beats per minute, so very similar inclusion criteria to what we had talked about in the previous trial. Um, all of the patients did receive our standard of care with um, AV nodal blocking agents. And in this trial, again, didroxin was the most commonly administered AV nodal blocking agent at about 50% of the patients receiving it, and then 25% of the patients receiving diltiazem, and 25% of the patients receiving metoprolol. This treatment was different. They looked at two different dosing regimens of magnesium, so what they had called a high-dose magnesium regimen of 9 grams over 30 minutes, a low-dose regimen of 4.5 grams over 30 minutes, and then a matching placebo over 30 minutes. For their primary outcome, they looked at ventricular rate control within the first four hours, and then reduction to 90 beats per minute, or 20% from baseline in these patients. So for results of this trial, you can see that in the high-dose and the low-dose magnesium group, there was a greater percentage of patients that had achieved that ventricular rate of less than 90 beats per minute at four hours as compared to placebo. But when looking at this effect long-term, up to 24 hours, there were no differences between the two groups in terms of rate control and achievement of that 90 beat per minute cutoff. What's interesting when looking at this trial, and this is a result that I would expect with using the higher-dose magnesium, is that in that higher-dose magnesium group, more patients experienced adverse effects. So more patients experience flushing, hypotension, and bradycardia as compared to that low-dose and placebo group. So using a larger dose of 9 grams may not be necessary in these patients, so somewhere around 4 to 5 grams is likely a reasonable dose to treat our patients as an adjunct for AFib. So some key points to think about when using IV magnesium for AFib. Um, really, it's utilized as an adjunct in addition to our other standards of care for um, treatment and ventricular rate control. It can have an impact on both rate and rhythm control, although the mechanism is more direct with rate control and indirect with rhythm control. And this is because it's thought to be synergistic with other AV nodal blocking agents. So like our standards of care now here, um, diltiazem is what I have seen at St. Mary's in Rochester. Dosing throughout the literature is very variable for the use of magnesium and AFib. Um, there's really a wide range of doses studies as we've seen anywhere from four to nine grams. Um, but really starting with at least a dose of four grams over 30 minutes has been associated with rate control and is likely appropriate for these patients. And I'd like to go into our final Poll Everywhere question of the presentation. So what best describes the role of IV magnesium and AFib with RVR? All right, so I think we have a good majority of our um, response to the question. So I would agree with D. Um, it has shown improvements in rate and rhythm control. Um, so a key thing to think about this is the direct mechanism of magnesium relates to rate control, but it's thought to indirectly impact rhythm control. Um, when looking at answer A, um, so it has not shown only improvements in rhythm control. Um, for B, I would not consider it a first-line treatment in AFib, but rather an adjunct to add on to our other standards of care in AV nodal blocking agents. So in those patients who are continuing to have tachycardia um, and were unable to control their ventricular rate, magnesium can be a therapy to add on um, in those patients presenting with AFib. And then C is incorrect because it has not shown um, only improvements in rate control. So in summary of this pre presentation, Magnesium has been studied in multiple common emergent presentations that we'll see in the ED. 
Its mechanism and effectiveness is really a function of the disease state. And when looking at administrations in emergency medicine, it's not what we will see for electrolyte, electrolyte re repletion. It's a lot faster, but it's proven safe. And given the disease states, it's important to follow how these medications have been studied. And this isn't something we're going to be giving over an hour. Um, it's something we're going to be giving fast, and it's okay, and we can monitor the patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.